Welcome to the Wellbeing Warrior podcast with me, Victoria, the Wellbeing Warrior. This week, I talked to Lara Burwell about being diagnosed with thyroid cancer at the age of 27. Lara talks about her diagnosis, treatment and recovery with the support of her family, her fiancé Ben and her one-year-old son Mason. All right, so you're living your life. Uh, just had your first son and returned to work after mat leave, ready to get your life started, and you're hit with this massive diagnosis of thyroid cancer. Um, in that moment, did you have any idea of the enormity of the situation? No, I didn't. I think I knew something was wrong, obviously, because there was a giant ball growing on the front of my neck, but... I kind of, oddly, I'd felt so kind of rubbish and deteriorating for the past couple of months that I was just kind of grateful, as odd as that sounds, for some sort of validation. Right. And I don't think it hit me because I think at that point in time, I was like, oh, okay, can't be that bad because here I am and I'm fine, kind of. But then as he started to go into it a little bit more, the kind of the phrasing changed and like the consultant was like, yes, it is quite serious. And it just, it got kind of tense really quick. And there was a nurse allocated to like sit behind us, which I I thought was strange. And then they introduced her as the Macmillan nurse then said that she'll speak to us afterwards. And it just kind of all got like, it's, I could see the enormity of it in their eyes. Right. But for me, I was still kind of like, yeah, I'm good. Like, can we, can, when can we go sort of thing? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely was an accumulative realisation. And so what were your initial thoughts? I think I just was just shocked. I, I thought of Mason and I just thought, what is this going to be like for him? Is he going to lose his mum when he's one? Is he going to have some, you know, have to go through some crazy experience when he's not even old enough to know what's going on? And am I going to lose time with him? And so kind of mainly about him. I kind of, I suppose in my head, went through a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, And I just, I I didn't know. I thought chemo, I thought... All of the things that people associate with cancer, because I think until you go through it, you're directly affected by it. You see the the videos of the charities, and you see, you know, you kind of hear about it. And I didn't. I thought cancer, chemo, death. If you're lucky, then not. And uh, that was all I kind of thought. So I thought, well, okay, this is it. Then this is, you know. Um, but I didn't feel scared I just felt I kind of wanted to be organised I wanted to just know what was going on whereas I think when I looked at Ben he yeah you could see that his initial thoughts were a lot more kind of paralysing he looked really shocked 
Okay. Um, so you say that, um, you know, your kind of idea of cancer is that cancer and then chemo. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case for you, was it? Can you talk us through um, the treatment that you received? Yeah, so I, they explained to me at the time that I was going to have to have an operation to get rid of the tumour that was obviously physically growing. Um, and then after that, I have something called radioactive iodine treatment, um, which I'd never heard of. Um, they kind of were explaining to me that a lot of things would change for me, like I'd have to be on medication for the rest of my life. And um, thyroid cancer is is quite different to other cancers in that you have to stay in remission for 10 years. So at any point within those 10 years, you've got kind of a one in 10 chance that it might come back. Okay. Um, they, they, they told me that they thought they were gonna have to take out half or all of my thyroids and they were just gonna kind of have a look what else was going on and it would be within the next couple of weeks. Um, I think what kind of hit me the most at that point in time is the scar because I knew the scar was going to go from ear to ear around the front of my neck and I still didn't think when they said this kind of cancer doesn't require chemotherapy it doesn't work and that kind of thing I just thought oh this isn't as bad then um so to me I thought oh they're going to get it out it's going to be fine but I'm going to be left with this massive scar um so yeah I had the I had the operation um and they found quite a bit more than they thought they were going to find. They found a 6.6 millimeter tumor going across all across my thyroid and my lymph nodes and other medical jargon that they took out. I didn't really right. understand. Um, but the, the surgery ended up being quite aggressive. Um, in that they found more than they thought they were going to. So the after effects of that were pretty horrendous. And at that, at that point, I think, I thought, whoa, I, this isn't, this isn't, nothing was what they thought it was gonna be. And there was no clear plan. And I looked like something from Halloween and it, it, it was, just yeah that was kind of cataclysmic I just thought oh my god just oh, what's gonna happen now right and I um I remember before um because obviously I I know you in real life um and I was following along in real time um and the the thing that really strikes me is that your whole journey, it seems that you were constantly being presented with another obstacle. So you thought you were just going in for some kind of surgery that maybe they, you felt they downplayed now looking back. Mm -hmm. um, you thought that you'd come out, you'd recover for a couple of weeks and then maybe have that radio iodine. Um, yeah. That's not the way it really went, is it? No, and that they said it was going to be sort of an in and out, three days max surgery, obviously not surgery for three days, a three days stay, in hospital. <laughs> um, and then yeah, come out and see what the recovery time would be. Um, 
which I wasn't worried about. I had a really kind of um, helpful workplace that just said, you know, get on with it, do whatever. That was pressure off my mind. Um, but yeah, the, it just, it, it was awful. So they, they did the surgery and then they weren't quite sure what the effects of that would be because it was so kind of, there was so much trauma to my neck and took so much different stuff out um, that they didn't realize that obviously your neck's very sensitive. Um, when the, my cancer on my thyroid was literally stuck to my throat um, and they had to scrape away a lot. And in doing so, they damaged a lot of nerves, which is where it really became difficult and unpredictable. Um, unknowingly, they damaged the nerves to my vocal cords, which basically means that my, you wouldn't know it now, but um, at the time I couldn't, I couldn't talk, um, I couldn't swallow, and I couldn't really breathe. Um, breathing was manageable because I had kind of oxygen on nebulizers and all that kind of stuff um, as standard practice for that, that kind of surgery. Um, but the night that I, I came out of surgery, I went back on the ward as, as you know, planned. Um, <clears throat> I had some medicine to take and the nurse that was on duty at the time was encouraging me to kind of swallow this water and take some medicine. Swallowed a bit, well, I put a bit of water in my mouth and attempted to swallow. It was all numb and obviously I was on a lot of painkillers. Um, but it just went straight down into my lungs and I kind of popped and spluttered. And, um, and that was kind of early on, about nine o'clock-ish. And throughout the duration of the night, this uh, kept encouraging me, come on, drink a bit more, try a bit more, try again. But without ever looking at me, not looking at me in the eye, mm. it was kind of very assertive. This happens after you have this kind of surgery, just get on with it. But the more I was doing it, the more I... I, I I couldn't do it. I was literally drowning and I couldn't do, tell anyone, I couldn't talk. Every time I rang the buzzer, that nurse came back. Wow. Um, and it was just, it was so frightening. I didn't sleep a wink. And then the next day on the ward round, they came round and I had, <laughs> had a little whiteboard and I was scribbling away to the consultant, like, can't they? Mm -hmm. um, they looked down with a uh, camera and they said, yeah, she can't swallow at all, nil by mouth. And I was like, oh, hallelujah, but also, oh my gosh. Um, and similar kind of little mishaps happened throughout my journey. And I was kind of just stuck in there. I couldn't talk. I was relying on them entirely. And it was pretty, it was pretty brutal. And you've um, described your journey in, in your blog, which is uh, beautifully written and available to see on your Instagram page, um, mm -hmm. learning to breathe. Um, and through reading that, you can really see that even though I'm sure it was scary and there were times where you felt like, where am I gonna go from here? You, you kept striving um, and you're so young to have something like this happen to you. Was that a conscious decision or do you feel that you 
kind of clicked into survival mode what what did that feel like for you I definitely I think I think the whole time because I always had this getting the out mindset I need to go back to my son he's going to forget me because he's so young um that no matter what happened I was just constantly trying to push them into letting me take the next step towards coming home so at one point I was in intensive care for a week or so I think um and as, as soon as I knew, knew like what was going on I was a bit more conscious I was like right let's get the carpenter around let's do it. and I kind of had I had a massive whiteboard like you'd see in school and I would every day have somebody write on their task that I was going to do or clinics that I was going to see and about the next step because at the time obviously with the vocal cords I couldn't eat so I couldn't I couldn't eat on my own I couldn't drink on my own I couldn't talk on my own so all of the things that I needed to be able to do to show people I'm ready ready I was just not in control of at all so I think I was just waiting kind of grasping for that control and then when it got to sort of the end, um, I say the end, when I was back in the ward, um, in the end, my kind of dodgy airway, because of the cords collapsed completely, they gave me a tracheotomy. Um, and as soon as I got back on the ward and I was able to kind of move around a bit more, I'd get up in the morning, I'd make my bed, and I'd kind of like show them, like, I'm ready, I can do it. Um, and I don't think it was a kind of conscious decision to kind of keep going. It was just like, oh, I'm ready, I'm ready. And right. I wanted to defy their concerns, their worries. They they kind of sat me down and said, the, the head consultant sat me down and very kind of plainly said, you need to prepare yourself for a very kind of real fact that you might be going in with the tracking, you might be going in with a peg in your stomach um, to be able to eat. And my talking might not recover. And kind of, I would, as soon as they would go, I'd say, yes, yes, and be kind of very somber and ride with the vibe. And then as soon as they left, I'd kind of clutch into my McMillan nurse and be like, okay, so if I just uh, do something else. Could I do this? Could I? Is there anything I can do to try and eat? Is there anything I can do to do this? So I would just literally train myself to swallow, take a sip of water, and kind of one in 10 sips would go down the right way, and then one in five, and then, you know, and yeah. as soon as I was able to do it consistently, I'd then do it with like the special water sip drink things that are full of protein and. And then as soon as I could do that enough, they stopped tube feeding me, which meant that eventually I wouldn't need a pen. So things like that, I just kind of asked, asked for the loopholes, asked for the other ways around it. Um, because I just, um, I wasn't going home with that quality of life. Yeah. And so obviously you're out of the hospital now, you, you're working a bit, um, you're mm -hmm. back to some 
kind of a, a what might be a new normal for you um, right. while we're all living in a new normal for us at the moment. Um, what has the illness left you with though? What um, I know we've talked about, um, you know, the, um, the kind of collateral damage. So you've been left with a much smaller um, airway. Um, obviously your voice is different and I know that because I know you. Um, but can you tell the listeners a little bit about kind of where you are now? Mm-hmm. I think now I've got to, given this is a year on, so now I've kind of got to a place where I'm a lot more okay with what I'm what I'm left with now. The there was a there was a bit more nerve damage that we didn't realise at the time, but that that severed the nerves of my right trapezius muscle. I say things kind of with a waiver because I never remember the right words. <laughs> but that has left me with really kind of limited movement in my right arm, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's usable. I can, I can do it, but it's putting my whole body out of line and it's kind of slowly getting that little bit worse. So it was mentally, I'm getting better. My voice has definitely improved and I can eat now perfectly fine. Um, that the physical implications are, I can't avoid, I can't kind of push that I need to do quite um, extensive physio every day. Um, I've got some Botox injections coming up and some more tests and whatnot um, about that. So I'm working with that, but I'm kind of trying to accept now that I'm not going to be able to go back into the job that I was in before and have the same prospects as I did before Um, because I just don't, have it in me is that I worked at the nursery um, as you know as my manager um, and I've always kind of been in the management unit of that nursery but I I can't manage the long days anymore um, and I just can't dedicate myself I'm not you know with the total acceptance I'm not reliable um, and I got so much love for that kind of the company and the people and everything so I, I, I like being there and I like contributing what I can but I'm working on myself I've got to find some kind of you know keep trying to kind of side hustle and um work around my family and just find a find a balance like everybody in life I suppose anyway mm-hmm. um that's just being a mum but I I yeah I'm more accepting and I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I'm not, you know, my my face is constantly puffy as a kind of a result. I've obviously got this huge scar um, and this ridiculously high voice. Um, but, you know, I'm alive, I'm here. I'm able to tell my story. I'm able to articulate it enough so that it's relatable. And I've had people contact me from my blog that have been through similar things or just grateful to know what happens after diagnosis what is how does that you know how does that play out um and just appreciate the writing and I'm like okay okay I've got something that that I can go with I'm creative and I can do that and that's 
I'm happy for that to be my thing and I don't need, you know, that, I guess, very structure of a workplace. I've got to learn to, to do it on my own and I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, and so what, what do you do? Because I know it's hard for someone who hasn't been through um, such a traumatic experience as you um, to balance that well-being in their life. What is it that you do? What helps you? Oh, um, oh see, it's a funny one because I things that help me, things that I enjoy doing, I end up doing so much that I push it and push it and then I stress myself out because I'm dedicating myself to it. <laughs> like, I must be mindful today. <laughs> but I'm trying to, I, you know, do you know what? I think taking my little boy, no phones, no, you know, anything, just out somewhere in nature. I'm a big fan of just big, ominous spaces and just taking it all in. And he's so funny. Like, he, he is, if you want to just check out and just be in the moment, and he's, he's everything that I need. He's, he's like, it's like he just knows, I suppose. Like, his personality is just exactly what I need. So I think just not doing anything consciously and just doing what's right in front of me and enjoying it, that's my well-being. That's my... That's my... I leave that time thinking, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. Yeah. And what does the future hold for you? Ooh. Do you know what? I don't know. I... Are you at a place yet where you can think about that? Or is that still... I, do you know what I am? But like... I would... There's so many things that I would like. I'd like to own a lovely house. I'd like to... You know, I'd like to know that the cancer's not going to come back and blah, blah, blah. Um, but... I don't know and it's and it's kind of easier for me to I guess just plan in short times ahead of me and just to fill that with things that I love I mean that I love Christmas so I'm down for it I'm there I'm ready I'm going all in so things like that I just yeah I kind of segment myself throughout the year in terms of which celebrations coming up next and I just <laughs> kind of think about love. that um so yeah, I don't know what's next for me. I guess I think just just staying positive and just having positive conversations like this, just learning about other people, listening to other people and new things happen. I think I'm just kind of, that's it. No planning, just appreciating and listening. People that you meet that work in these places, in these clinics, and it's incredible, the amount of dedication. I mean, I got a Macmillan nurse that was dedicated to me at the start of the whole journey. And she's still a year on. I mean, I'm not currently in treatment, but most days I'll have some sort of contact with her and she is there. Any questions about hospital, she's there. Obviously she's got more patients, but they just have that sole dedication, like so many of the other people that I met in hospital. Um, 
And I remember thinking so many times that I'd, I'd go to bed and I'd see this one person. And then like nine o'clock the next day, they'd still be kind of flitting around doing things. And I'd be thinking, when do you go home? And I know we're all appreciating the NHS right now and everything that they do, but I don't think I really knew how much they did yeah. until I went through this. And these people are next level. It's just, it's crazy to me. I've, I've said so many times to so many of them, why, why do you do this? But they love it and they, I suppose they do it so that people have this experience with them and, uh, you know, to help. And I just think it's, I really do, I take my hat off and I think that is definitely worth mentioning. Um, and I know that you've had really positive experiences with some of the, yeah. um, it was Marie Curie, wasn't it? That yeah, you absolutely. Yeah, Marie Curie worked really closely with my mum when uh, before she went, and uh, I just can't, like you, I can't say enough positive things about them. They're just, they are just so dedicated and um, just, they're, yeah, they're just amazing. There's no other words. They help you kind of. I think when you're in that real darkness. I'm doing, I, I get a lot of um, support with um, the science kind of stuff. I always call it um, throughout this experience. I'm still seeing them now and they, I'm doing a very similar thing with them at the moment um, where they kind of pull the really, really traumatic memories that you have. Um, they help you intensify the emotion and really go into it and then they, bring you back to a happy place that you can kind of envision. And even though it exhausts me completely, just being sat in a chair talking about this stuff, yeah. it's nice to have somebody that is listening. And of course you've got loads of people in your life that are listening and there, but it gets old. It does, it gets old for anyone, especially people around you that have lived the experience in their own shoes. Yeah. and gone to hell and back anyway the last thing they want to do a year later is listen to me going you know what I feel really sad about that thing and why did that happen and why didn't I do this and it, you know it, it's we're moving on but you need that you can't just lock it in a box somewhere and expect to you know just move on and it's very difficult I know I mean I mean I hope you don't mind me mentioning but about um when you came to see me in hospital yeah. and it was the first time you'd been to hospital since your mum passed and yeah. you were kind of fairly new to our workplace around that time <laughs> yeah. um and I, I, I suppose a lot of things were new to you at that point but you came into hospital and I remember <laughs> kind of looking at you guys thinking do I look monster how's this how's this gonna go and uh the you know somebody that we work with was very you know she was she looked concerned but she was just kind of okay you know having a chat <laughs> and I just kind of I saw your face like just it went kind of the kind of huge just changed and you just kind of went paler and paler and paler I said oh I'm just gonna step out for a minute 
And Zoe, our colleague, was just like, okay. And I just, <laughs> I was like, I think you should go with that because she's not looking so good. Mm. And when it late, you're just on the floor. Yeah. Walked yeah. right into the wall. <laughs> Went down like a ton of bricks. But that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm, after everything that you went through, losing your mum, I think, starting a new workplace, what, what are you going to do? You can't sit there and reiterate everything in your head. So you park it, you box it. Yeah. But then you are going to be faced at some point. Absolutely. Your body will respond physically, which is what happened to me that day. And it, I remember it just being so overwhelmed, but really wanting to be there for you at that particular moment. Thinking, have you ever felt anything like that before? That overwhelm? No, no. I think it was a, a whole mixture of, you know, I was still very much grieving my mother. It had only been a, a month or so, I think, since since um, since she'd gone, um, and obviously I was, you know, brand new to that workplace. I was so concerned about you because I think during your diagnosis, I think we'd made a, a, a real connection and I was just so concerned and wanting you to be okay. Um, and I think being in that environment as well, I hadn't been in a hospital environment since my mum had been in hospice and just that overwhelming, um, just, just my body just shut down. And I remember getting up because I didn't want to faint in front of you. I didn't want it to be about me we were visiting you in hospital you just had surgery you must have been feeling absolutely terrible um so I thought if I just step out if I just take a few breaths I'll be okay but as you know I didn't make it across the room yeah I mean it was personally that you were gonna get <laughs> but yeah I'm I'm really aware of that and I think about it a lot when I kind of question is it worth going to bed is it, is it worth doing this stuff but I know that in the future there is a possibility that this could come back. There's still levels in my blood that they're not quite sure about and scans and tests will be coming up in March. And, you know, I could be faced with a very similar environment at any point. Yeah. And I need to be able to come back to my other place. Yeah. I need to, you know, I need to be able to handle that. I need to, yeah, I think I just, I can't afford to have a complete meltdown. So I think I need to invest this time in myself and just let her listen. And and it seems so cliche, but even when like, you know, they're kind of like, it must have been terrible. You're like, yeah, it was actually. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, the psych side of it has been, it's been interesting, but necessary. Yeah. And I think I would, I, I really would like to try to force it on my family and, you know, those people around me because, I mean, I went to help, but geez, they, it was harder for them. Yeah. Of course it was hard for them. You know, Ben had to sign off a um, kind of consent form for me to have a tragedy, which was the one thing I said I didn't want. Um, obviously, my mum and dad just seeing me after having an arrest and just with all sorts and I ended up having sort of six surgeries within the space of two weeks and they obviously were there for all of that yeah. and when I think if that were me I just that that's not I can't even comprehend um 
So I think I, uh, yeah, that, I suppose that troubles me because I can't, I can't change that. I can't take that away from them and I can't force them to, to kind of talk to anybody about it because not everybody has the same view on it. I would, I really, really, really recommend sort of therapy and in any form um, for anyone because everybody's got stuff going on. My sister actually has spoken to somebody um, and found it just completely brilliant, life-changing. But she's in this generation, which where well-being and mental health and all of that kind of stuff is, is very it's very much promoted it's you know it's 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 promoted in workplaces it's given opportunities in workplaces um and I, I there's just a whole kind of acceptance of it, it that is in the kind of social media generation yeah. um and I know that I can't force that way of thinking onto anybody that isn't in that generation um and I, I, I just think, I, well, that's what I worry about. But of course, like anybody, it's the things you can't control, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. A huge thank you to Lara for, as always, being so open and honest. I will link her blog in my bio. Please take a look. And until next time, be well.